This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. So if you're new today, um, we are in the midst of a series from the Gospel of Luke called Encountering Jesus. So between now and Easter Sunday, we're looking at different encounters that Jesus has with different persons. And today we're talking about encountering his tenderness, encountering his tenderness. We're going to be in the eighth chapter of Luke, and we're going to begin reading at verse 40 and read through the end of chapter 8 encountering his tenderness. Let's look at the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and we'll begin reading there in verse 40. Encountering his tenderness. This is an incredibly beautiful, moving passage that features a couple of encounters that Jesus has with people. Luke chapter 8, and let's begin reading at verse 40. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Bible says, When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house, because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, stop crying, because she is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once, Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Um, Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus treating women and girls with a dignity that was not common in that culture, in that first century culture. And we see that in all four Gospels, but we, it's especially highlighted in Luke. And in this particular passage, once again, we, we see Jesus ministering here to, uh, to a girl, to a woman, to two daughters. 
One is the daughter of Jairus. The other is a woman that Jesus tenderly refers to as daughter. It's the only time that he uses that term for, for a grown woman in the, the Gospels. So it's the daughter of Jairus. It's a woman that Jesus refers to as a daughter. One is 12 years old and the other has been suffering for 12 years. So what do we see in this passage and what can we take away from it? What we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of walk through the action of the text. And then when we come to the end, we're going to look at five applications from it. Let's kind of walk through the text together. First of all, beginning in verse 40 and going through the the first part of verse 42. The Bible says, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. So Jesus has been doing ministry across the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's crossed back over to his adopted hometown, his home base of operations in Capernaum. And Luke tells us that a crowd was there to greet him. But there was one in the crowd that stood out for his desperation. Jairus was the leader of the synagogue in Capernaum. That means he was the guy who kind of arranged the, the, the worship and things in the synagogue. Everybody would have known Jairus. He was a leader in the community. But none of that matters now. Jairus is just a desperate daddy because his little girl is dying. And we've talked before about when people got sick in a, in a culture without antibiotics, they often just died, and children especially a lot of times would just die from, from illnesses that typically people would not die from today. And so they were used to seeing the signs of death. And all the signs were there in this little girl. They knew that she was about to pass away, and her daddy knows that, and so he is absolutely desperate. And he makes his way through the crowd. He is not going to be stopped And he falls down at the feet of Jesus and pleads with Jesus to come and to heal his daughter. And so Jesus immediately has compassion on him and he's headed to the house. But just then, something else happens. Another desperate person approaches. Look at the latter part of verse 2 through verse 44. It says, while he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Now, the the latter part of verse 42 here tells us about sort of the nature of this crowd. It says they were nearly crushing Jesus. They're just pressing in, just surging forward. But there's another person who, who manages to make her way through because of her desperation. And this woman was, was totally desperate. Luke tells us that she had been suffering from, it was probably like a female-related bleeding for 12 years, and it was disastrous. It was a medical disaster. 
It says that none of the doctors could do anything about it. It was a financial disaster. She had spent everything that she could in an effort to get well to no avail, and it was a social disaster because a woman with this condition would have become like a a social outcast in the community, almost treated like a leper. And so she hears that Jesus is coming, and she has faith that he can do something for her. And so she comes out of her cocoon and makes her way through, and almost like a a football player reaching out the ball to just barely touch the the pylon, she reaches out her hand and just touches the edge of Jesus' robe. And it says that instantly she knew that she was healed. And Jesus also knows that something has happened. Verses 45 and 46, who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. (laughs) Now imagine how nonsensical it must have sounded when Jesus asked, who touched me? I mean, like there were hundreds of hands that had touched him in the last 30 seconds before he asked that question. But Jesus is just so in touch with the power that flows from within him that he knows that healing power has gone forth to someone. Verses 47 and 48, when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How did she know she was discovered? I mean, perhaps someone saw her and knew that she was out of place. I think it was probably something else, though. Mark, in his account of this, tells us that that Jesus was looking around the crowd to see who had touched him. I believe that his eyes met her eyes, and he knew that it was her, and she knew that he knew. And so she comes falling down, trembling, and yet testifying at the same time. And Jesus takes delight. He takes delight in her faith. And he has compassion on her. And he says, your your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, in shalom, in this sense of wholeness and well-being that she had not experienced in a dozen years. And it's a beautiful moment. But, but just at this beautiful moment comes the saddest news from the home of Jairus. Verses 49 and 50. While he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And it's painful uh, as a dad to even think about what Jairus is going through at that moment when he hears those words, your daughter is dead like the nausea that must have rushed forward in him. He must have just felt like been on the verge of passing out with grief. And Jesus immediately sees what he's going through and immediately moves to reassure him. And so uh, Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be saved. Verses 51 and 52, after he came to the house, 
He let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her. But he said, stop crying because she is not dead but asleep. But in a world where people died all the time and kids died all the time, these people know death when they see it. And they're incredulous at what Jesus says. And so verse 53, it says they laughed at him because they knew she was dead. But Jesus tells the mom and dad to come with him. He takes the inner core of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, tells them to come. And he goes into the room where this little girl's corpse is lying there. And he takes her by the hand and he speaks tenderly to her. Mark in his account of this preserves the original Aramaic words that Jesus spoke in. Jesus touched her, touched her little hand, took a hold of it and said, Talitha kum, which kind of in, in modern English would have been something like, honey, it's time to get up. And verses 55 and 56 tell us what happened. It says her spirit returned and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. This is one of several times in the Gospels where after Jesus performs a miracle, he says, don't tell anyone. Because Jesus doesn't really want to be known as Mr. Wonderworker. He knows that will distract from his larger purposes. But he tells us something different today, right? He tells us to go and tell. So what are some of the things that we can go and tell about this passage? I want us to, give, I want us to see five takeaways here, okay? Five points of application. Five things that we can go and tell about this text. First of all, here we see something about faith. Something about faith. It took faith for Jairus to come to Jesus. He had to trust that Jesus could do something for his little girl. It took faith for the woman to come. She had to believe that Jesus could, could do something about her condition. And Jesus highlights faith here, doesn't he? Uh, look at verse 48. He says to the woman, daughter, your faith has saved you. Look at verse 50. It says, when Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be saved. So Jesus, throughout the Gospels, commends people for simply coming before him in faith and presenting their need to him and trusting him to act. And he calls us to do the, the same <clears throat> Paul in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 says, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Just lay it out there the way these two people did. Present your request to, to God. Um, now, we see here both the sovereignty of God and answering prayer but also we see that we're responsible to pray. God is the one who answers, but yet he calls upon us to pray. I saw a beautiful example of this uh, this past week. There's a, a brother in Christ uh, named Justin Taylor who posted something on Valentine's Day about his mom's 
conversion 50 years ago. This is, this is beautiful. Just listen to it. Justin Taylor wrote on Valentine's Day, on this day 50 years ago, my mother, Diane Taylor, was converted, placing her faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of her sins. In 1969, she was a 23-year-old sixth-grade teacher in California. Some of her students were using drugs, and she wanted to help them, but didn't know how. A fellow teacher told her about a speaker who was working with teenagers to help them turn their lives around. She brought several of her students to hear him speak. It was David Wilkerson. In 1962, at the age of 31, he had written a best-selling book, book, The Cross and the Switchblade, a memoir of his ministry to gang members in New York City. My mother had never heard a salvation message before. She thought about Wilkerson's message for a month. A month later, at a ski party, she went out in the cold and snow by herself and looked up and prayed. I don't know you, God. I don't know about who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit that guy talked about, but if what that man said is true, somehow show me. She didn't feel any fireworks or even a strange warm feeling. She just went inside where everyone was partying. But God had begun working in her heart that night, and she soon sensed an abiding peace and an unquenchable thirst for God's word. The Christian principal of her school began discipling her. And Justin writes, Today, uh, today uh, she writes on Valentine's Day of 2019, I celebrate 50 years of walking with my Jesus. Her name won't make it into any history books, but half a century ago tonight, God changed our worlds. Now, that's a beautiful story, and it highlights both God's sovereignty in answering prayer but yet, and also our responsibility to pray. We see God's sovereignty all over that story, right? It was God that prompted her to, to have a concern for these kids who were using drugs. It, it was God in his, in his sovereignty that placed a Christian, a fellow teacher, a Christian in her path that encouraged her to, to take them to a, a Christian event. It, it was God and his sovereignty that began to work in her heart. She thought about what she had heard, the, heard for a month. He, he wouldn't let, her, he wouldn't let, it, let it go. Right? He, he, was, he was pursuing her. The hound of heaven was on her trail. It was God that prompted her to go out into the snow that night and to look up to him and, and, and pray. And it was God who answered her prayer and who gave her a new heart, a heart with an unquenchable thirst for God's word. And it's, it's just a beautiful picture, right, of, of God's power and sovereignty and, and drawing someone and regenerating the heart. But yet we also see that God works through means. He works through people. He used a, a believer to invite her to come to an event where the gospel was going to be shared. He used a, a, a preacher, a human being, at that event to share the gospel. And he he answered in response to her prayer and then used another person to disciple her. So look, we see that, 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 that God 
answers prayer, but yet he calls us to pray in faith, trusting in him to answer. So we see something about faith here. Second, something about relationship. Something about relationship. Notice that when Jesus feels the power go out from him, that he stops. No, he didn't have to do that. You know, Jesus, there's a crowd pressing in, and he's on his way to Jairus' home. And I mean, Jesus could have simply taken a mental note of it and felt the power leave his body and, and, and thought to himself, oh, wow, I feel power leave. I, obviously, someone was just healed and kept going his, on his way to Jairus' home. But he doesn't do that. He stops. He wants to know who it is that he is healed. Why? I, I love what Michael Card says about this. He says it's not, an, it's not enough for Jesus to give her healing. He wants to give her himself. Jesus is not satisfied just to sort of have like a, a transactional relationship with this woman where you know, he knows he's done something for someone but he doesn't know them. No, he wants to know who it is. He wants to know her. He wants her to know him. He desires a personal relationship with each one of us. And so we see something about relationship. Third, something about timing. Something about timing. Now think about <laughs> what Jairus, this father, must have been thinking because he knows that his little girl is, is right on the edge of death. Every second counts, and yet Jesus stops and he ministers to this other person as the clock is ticking. And, and, and in the meantime, his child dies. Maybe if Jesus hadn't have stopped to help the other person, she wouldn't have died. But listen, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing, and he knows what he's doing in your life and in mine. And his timing is always the best. I love what New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says about this. He says, we want to lobby for the superiority of our preferred timing. Isn't that the truth? But God's timing is better. God's timing is better. He makes no mistakes. He knows what he's doing. Fourth, we see something here about death. Something about death. Isn't it interesting that the crowd seems to believe that Jesus can, can heal this little girl but not bring her back to life. Because as long as they think she's alive, you know, they're excited about the prospect of Jesus coming and healing her. But the moment that they find out that she's dead, what do they say? Don't bother the teacher anymore. It's over. Done. No hope. That's the way a lot of people feel about death. Uh, I read just a heartbreaking thing this, this week about uh, Larry, Larry King. Many of you remember Larry King from the, the interview shows. He's, he's 85 years old now. And in this article in the New York Times, Mark Leibovich was, was talking about how Larry King, this 85-year-old, is, is, just, is just terrified of, of, of death because he has no hope beyond the grave. He says, it says this, King takes four human growth hormone pills every day, but in case of death, he is arranged to have his body frozen 
and then thawed out when researchers discover a cure for whatever killed him, the so-called cryonics approach. King told me that the people behind cryonics are all nuts, but at least he knows he will be, at least he knows if, if he's frozen, if, he, if he'll, be, he'll be frozen, he will die with a shred of hope. Other people have no hope, King said. You know, I mean, I, I think about the times when Billy Graham sat across the desk from Larry King and shared the gospel with him. So I know he's heard it, but, you know, it's just an example. Only God and his sovereignty can, can open our, our hearts to, to believe. Um, but how many Larry Kings do we have in our own lives? How many people do we have in our lives, like in our families or maybe our extended family, our relatives, maybe friends, people that we work with, people that we go to school with? How many people do we have in our lives that to them the prospect of death is just sort of a black hole, just sort of a dark mystery? They, they just, you know, there are people like that in every single one of our lives. Listen, we've been asking the question for 2019, who's your one? Who's your one? Who's a person in your life this year where you're going to be praying for them by name for their salvation, sharing the gospel with them, inviting them to come to church with you? Who's your one? They're people that need hope. Fifth, we see something about the cross. Something about the cross. There's something here that 21st century readers of this would not see on the surface, and it's this. It's the contact, the human touch that Jesus has with these people. Because physical contact was not supposed to happen with either one of these people. The, the woman in the story had a condition where in that culture, they believed that she was ceremonially unclean. And so no one was supposed to touch her. She wasn't supposed to touch anyone else because if, if, if they had contact with her, then they would be ceremonially unclean. But she touches Jesus. And we've seen in other stories where, like with lepers. It was the same deal. They weren't supposed to touch anybody. Nobody's supposed to touch them. Jesus intentionally reaches out and touches lepers. With the little girl, it was another thing to touch a dead body. They believed that touching a corpse would, would render the person unclean. So they would go out of their way to make tombs like just super white. They would whitewash them with lime so that nobody would even inadvertently touch a tomb because to come in contact, they believed, with the dead would, would make them unclean. And yet we see here that when Jesus goes into the room, he is very intentional about reaching out and touching, taking hold of the hand of this little girl's lifeless body. Now there's a larger picture here of what's going on when we think about the cross. 
Because in the cross, we see that the God did not become a human being to stay removed from us. No. He becomes a human being to come to us. To come to this fallen world and to get his hands dirty. And more than that, to take our dirt and our uncleanness on himself. And to even take death itself on himself and die in our place and rise so that we can live. That's the heart of the gospel. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.